I love Pastor Mike. Man, Pastor Mike, as you just breeze around the curtain, because I know you'd rather be there where you have some public praise, he embodies what it means um, to speak truth in love. And what a gift that is to walk church. What a gift that it has been to me personally. So can we just give it up for Pastor Mike um, for keeping it moving? Come out from behind the curtain, bro. We want to honor you today. Man, thank you for being a leader in my life and, and speaking truth to me in love and always and in such a, such a needed way for me in this season. Uh, and so I really appreciate you. You're a gift to this body. Uh, you, can, you can rest assured knowing that the administrative order of this church is not only in capable hands in terms of skill, but it's in faithful hands in terms of heart. And so I honor you for that, bro. I honor Pastor Hayden and Nina. Uh, thank you so much for investing in me and investing in Kristen in this journey. We, uh, you, you know, this God of More series, uh, Pastor Hayden, you'll have to tell me if this is accurate, but I believe it was wrestling in his heart in February of 2019. And the reason why I know that is because I was serving as a student pastor at that time in Mobile, Alabama, and invited him to come preach to our students. And we had this big student gathering, and he came and brought a powerful word. And sometimes God just, uh, he pulls a hoodwink on you. You ever, you ever been in that scenario where you think you're planning something for someone else, and then God turns around and, and tells you it's for you? Well, I thought I brought Pastor Hyden to speak to our students, but God actually sent him there to speak directly to me and just felt a strong sense of calling to plant a church in that moment. Uh, and so I want to honor you for that, brother. And that's a me- I mean, anytime a message is on a pastor's heart for this length of time, you know that God has just done some very personal dealings uh, with him in a powerful way. And so I'm honored to be in the wake, honored to ride the wave. Uh, God's doing some cool things in this city. How, how many have you enjoyed this God of More series? It's been exciting, hasn't it? Had a land dinner. We got some incredible things not only happening. What's so cool about what's happening with the land that that Walk is purchasing is that it's it's for the city. It's not just about Walk Church. It's about Walk for the city. Uh, And I'm so pumped to be able to ride the wake of that and enjoy that and and collaborate uh, in that process. I want to honor you as a body. You guys have been just incredible, just incredibly receptive to Kristen and I, Cannon and Riley Joe. You've been so hospitable to us. So thank you for receiving us into Las Vegas. A lot of what we felt like God was, as he confirmed in our hearts that we were to move to the city, it was because we felt family here. And you guys have, have gone above and beyond what that means in our hearts and lives. So thank you so much for being that type of church, that when you walk in the door, you don't meet a stranger here. And so love you guys. Thank you for being here. Some launch team members that, that came all the way out from Mobile, Alabama and planted their lives here. Joseph, Cindy, and Caden Eads are, are there. Can we just give them a round of applause? Something that's really cool about when a church has a heart to multiply, it often, it always, I would say, it always involves ascending heart, which is tough. Uh, and so uh, you'll, have to, you'll have to get to know the Eads on, on a more personal level to hear their transition story. And just, uh, I'm just so grateful for you guys and everything that you're doing, not for us, but to plant a life-giving church in this city. And your commitment and honor towards us has been just, has been gas in the tank. And so with that said, I just feel 
uh, felt led in this series of God of More that we needed to dive into today what it means, what it looks like for God to do more in and through our joy. So the title today of the message is that God wants to do more in our joy. Somebody say joy. Look at somebody and say be joyful. Wake up. I know it's almost lunchtime. Be joyful today. It is a good day. It's a great day. The weather is beautiful right now in Las Vegas. Uh, Man, come on. Give it up for the weather. Uh, And if you're at home today, it is a joyful day to be at home. Maybe for whatever reason, you you are on the couch today because it was all you could do to log on. Or maybe uh, some circumstances have you where you can't be around others. And I just want to honor you and say it's a joyful day in your house. It's a joyful day in this house all around. And I think God wants to do a lot through our joy, on the heels of our repentance. Pastor Hyden brought an incredible word. Wasn't that a great word last week? On that God wants to do more in our nation. Yeah, if one claps, we all clap. That's the rule here. God wants to do more in our nation through repentance. And he used this phrase that I love, and I've just been like repeating it in my mind all week, that it's not just a one-time repentance. We, we live in a lifestyle, as Jesus followers, a lifestyle of repentance. Which is like, for some of us, that's like a huge killjoy. You're like, I thought you were talking about joy, and now like repentance is a killjoy. So why are you, like, why are you throwing that out there, that it's a, it's a lifestyle of repentance? Because I think that there is a strategic and relational pathway from repentance to joy that we're going to lean into today by the power of God's Word. And so I, I hope that you're ready to lean into that. But a lot of times, it's really difficult to move from repentance to joy, right? Because repentance, just by its very nature, involves us seeing the flaws of our soul, the flaws of our hearts, the flaws of our actions, and bringing those before God and others, confessing those sins. And so on the heels of that, I think the enemy is very crafty. I think he's very crafty at hijacking that moment in us to send us in a downward spiral that leads us into despair and not joy. And I think that's never God's intention and that's not God's heart when it comes to his conviction in our spirit and our repentance towards him. See what we do sometimes on the heels of repentance, uh, we're like, man, I haven't really been doing enough for God, which might be. It might be that God, God convicted you and he said, look, you need to, you need to start serving with your gifts. You need to start volunteering some of your time. Your life is too much just about you. That could be a real conviction point. But then what we might would do is say, okay, well, I'm going to do every single thing I can. I'm going to make the longest to-do list I can. I'm going to say yes to every single thing. And what we end up doing is have this laundry list of things that we will never complete. Then we fail at them, and then thus we feel like a failure. We become activity for God driven. Another, another response might be, you, you might be more in this camp, you might, uh, on the heels of repentance, fall more towards apathy. You might be like, man, I, I just never could, like, get it right, you know? Like, I never could beat that sin. I never could, uh, you know, really ever serve with faithfulness. I never could really be good enough, I felt like, for who people wanted me to be on the outside. And so you just kind of fall into apathy. You're like, man, I'll just show up to church every now and then, and that's fine. I'll just kind of chill and let other people do the work. I'll let other people talk about Jesus and I'll just kind of just be a floater and I'll fall into apathy. 
or another like really real way that I think the enemy just kind of jumps in and, ta- and attacks us on the heels of our repentance. And sometimes we might confess our sin to God. We might realize we might fall into apathy for a season. And then we become overwhelmed by all the things that are pressured from us on the outside. And we fall deep into anxiety. And we feel crushed by a workload we were honestly never intended to carry by ourselves. We feel crushed by a to-do list that honestly you're not... God doesn't even care that if you accomplish all of those things. There's something more that he wants to do in and through you from your repentance and into your joy. But for whatever reason, when following Jesus, we get hijacked in the middle of those two things. We have a hard time getting from our repentance, from our joy, because we've been like, we, we get this weight training coach mentality when it comes to following Jesus, right? Anybody, if you've ever done sports, you know that there, there's always the weight training coach. Our weight training coach was, I mean, he was capital I intense. Like he was, like we would have to push his truck around the football field and like had tractor tires going everywhere. Like he'd get up in your face and yell like, one more, one more. And it's like, like, how many times can you say one more until you're a liar, right? <laughs> like, you said one more like 30 reps ago, bro. Like, chill out, you know? And it's like we have this mentality, though, in our faith that when we're walking with Jesus, it's like Jesus is this strength training coach that has no conception of where you are, that has no empathy for what you've been through, that only wants something out of you, not something for you. And he's just screaming in your face. And that's not the picture that we see in the New Testament. That's not the picture that we see in the Bible. But sometimes we get that way because I think the enemy just hijacks our worldview. And he steers us toward, oh, if you don't accomplish these things, then you're not doing anything for God. Oh, if you don't, if, if you're not able to just overcome your anxiety with a prayer, then, oh man, you're messed up. And there's something more gracious about the way that God operates. There's something more kind The Bible says, Romans 2, verse 4, I believe, says that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's His kindness that ushers us into repentance. So that makes a lifestyle of repentance less of a killjoy and more of a rhythm in relationship. But how do we overcome those things? I think it is really dependent on discovering the right posture of our lives to discover the pathway to joy. We need to discover the right posture for our lifestyle to step into a lifestyle of repentance. There's a leader in the Old Testament. His name is Nehemiah. Nehemiah was an incredibly uh, accomplished leader. Like, uh, Mike, I think you and Nehemiah have a lot in common in the way that you accomplish things, but in a spirit-filled way. And uh, in the way that you engage in the city and you have good, God's good hand is upon you because of the way you've handled your relationships. That was true of Nehemiah. And as Nehemiah, uh, a little bit of backstory, because you need to understand how Nehemiah arrived where he is when he accomplishes so much. But before we jump into that, I need to make sure that everybody's awake. Are you, are you with me? If you're good, say you're good. All right, let's go. Nehemiah chapter 8. If you want to go ahead and turn towards that. If not, we got the Bible in the sky that will keep you 
on track. So Nehemiah chapter 8, what we learn in Nehemiah chapter 8 is that a lot of hard work has come to a head and a city has been rebuilt, the city of Jerusalem that housed God's people. But you might ask, like, why did the city have to be rebuilt? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because I'd like to tell you. The city had to be rebuilt because there was this empire called the Babylonian Empire. King Nebuchadnezzar was leading the Babylonian Empire and he was on this power-thirsty quest to overcome the known world and make everyone just uh, succumb to and infiltrate in, assimilate into the Babylonian culture. So what happened is they would go from town to town, they'd go from city to city, they would pillage that city, they would assert their dominance, and then they would infiltrate or they would assimilate the people of that land into different areas of Babylon. So what happened is the people in Jerusalem, when they rolled up on Jerusalem, they destroyed the city and they and they sent as many people that they could. Some were left in a remnant in Jerusalem that tried to still make it work, work but most of the inhabitant of Jerusalem was scattered all throughout the known Babylonian empire, which meant this, that families were then sent to foreign cultures to start their lives, to get jobs. It wasn't necessarily slavery like an Egypt type of perspective, but it was persecution from a go to this neighborhood, now you're going to be the minority in this neighborhood, you're going to be uh, everything that goes with that in terms of oppression and racism is going to follow that and putting you as a a minority and you are going to just assimilate into our culture, we're going to assert and you will be Babylonian. That was the goal of Nebuchadnezzar. So he, he dispersed all of the Jewish people all throughout the Babylonian Empire, just hoping to add and increase to his kingdom and his domain. But how many of you know that nations rise and fall, but the name of the Lord Jesus never will? Is that true? If you believe that, say amen this morning. We can talk. We can have a conversation. Nations will rise and fall. Leaders will come and go, but Jesus will be forever. He is forever. And so what happened is Nebuchadnezzar had his day. Then King Cyrus of Persia overthrew Nebuchadnezzar. He didn't have near as bad of a taste in his mouth towards the Jewish people. And at this time, the Jewish people had been assimilating into culture for quite some time. Uh, We're coming up on 60 years at this point. And so what you had is this guy named Nehemiah, who was a high-level leader. He had to be a high-honoring leader to get the position that he got. And, And he was in a workplace where he probably didn't like his boss. His boss probably didn't like the believe the same things that he believed, yet he still had to do his job. Am I preaching to anybody yet? Like, (laughs) he still had to do it. He still had to be faithful. And it said that the good hand of God was upon Nehemiah. So Nehemiah, the good hand of God was upon him, and he rose to this level of being the cupbearer to the king Cyrus. And as he rose to the level of becoming cupbearer to the king, uh, king Cyrus, you need to understand that's a highly influential role because of the proximity to the king. Like your king's not going to have a cupbearer that he doesn't like to kick it with, right? <laughs> like you're not, I'm not going to be like, hey bro, come like be like the guy who tastes, you, you have every meal with me. Like, I'm, I'm going to need to like you, right? <laughs> like, it's not going to be a tough hang. Like, and so you understand he's got to be a high honoring leader. He's got to be a, a, a relational leader. And so he gets to this place of being the cupbearer where he is, he's tasting for the king. So he's a high, tr- highly trusted leader. Um, and, and, but he's Jewish. He's of a different ethnicity. And he rose all the way to this place. And then his heart becomes burdened for his hometown. 
He sees, he gets word back that there's a remnant of people trying to make it in Jerusalem. The walls have been burned down. They're susceptible to enemy attack. And he starts to feel for his people. He feels a calling to something difficult. Maybe this God of more series has put a calling, a desire in your heart for something difficult. For something that seems out of reach, something that seems too hard, that something that seems like that's too more. <laughs> like I was okay with just like a little bit more, but that's too more. That's uncomfortable more. But God put that desire in Nehemiah's heart. So he approached the king in humility and he asked to be relieved of his duty so that he could lead the, his people to go rebuild the city of Jerusalem, which is not in the best interest of King Cyrus for another nation to be strengthened and fortified. But because the good hand of God was upon Nehemiah, King Cyrus granted that request. He goes to rebuild the city of, Jeru of Jerusalem. He leads the whole time. And, and, and what seems like such a busy exercise, like we're, we're approaching this building project. We purchased or we're in contract for a piece of land here at Walk Church, like got dreams in, for, a, for a building. What seems like sometimes a busy in, uh, exercise is actually just an opportunity for us to walk in faithfulness, for us to walk in patience, and for us to just diligently hear from God and what, he says, what Nehemiah says in, in chapter 2, and I think a couple of other times in the book, he says that God will build this city. And so there was diligence, there's faithful to plan, there's faithfulness, there's things that we have to do to, to exercise our domain, our, our, the domain that God's put in front of us. But at the same time, we're trusting in a sense of peace that God is going to build this. God's going to do this. God's going to buy that land. God's going to buy that land. God's going to build that complex that not only is going to house worship on Sundays, but it's going to fuel athletes all throughout the week. God's going to do it. He's going to do it. And we get to be a part of it. And that's how, kind of how Nehemiah's testimony went. And in chapter 8, we learned something very, very crucial. In the wake of busyness, in the wake of what we'll see as repentance, in the wake of frustration with life circumstance, he uses his people to paint a very crucial pathway from repentance to joy. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1 if you still awake, say, I'm alive. All right. All the people, they came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which Lord had commanded for Israel. They were celebrating a common history here. I want to do something, a little exercise that we're about to see in the next couple of verses where we get something that uh, church tradition has done for a long time. But I want us to, if you're able to, uh, in your living room or right here in the room, if you're able to just stand right now, I'd like for you to stand with me. Stand to your feet. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to read aloud as you read in your hearts, and you read along on the screen in the Bible in the sky. And I, as, we, as, we, as we kind of make our way through these verses, I think we're going to learn something about posture. So they're remembering their history together. And it says in verse 2, So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra, who was the priest, he brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. Verse 3, He read it aloud from daybreak till noon, and 
He faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men and women and all who could understand. And all the people listened attentively. They listened attentively. Just, just like if you can in your mind. All of these people have come from all over the known world to experience their heritage and the God of their faith. There is no written copies floating around. There's no jumbotron with the Bible verses on it. There's a faithful scribe reading God's word. There's no YouVersion Bible app. That one quite, hadn't quite hit the app store yet. <laughs> they're reading, they're listening attentively. They're like captivated by the story. Allow yourself to get into the story this morning. Verse 4. So Ezra, the teacher of the law, he stood on a high wooden platform that was built for the occasion. I love that phrase, built for the occasion. And beside him on his right stood Mattiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hikiah, Messiah. And on his left were his other homies. And then Ezra opened the book. And check this out. Ezra opened the book, and all the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, all the people stood up. Yeah. Don't miss the invitation there. As he opened the book, all the people, I just picture them just stepping back into their history, stepping back into their identity. Stepping back in who they were called to be. I don't know where you've been. I don't know what the chaos life of your home was like when you left this morning. I don't know what your rhythm is in the week that has you all kind of every which away. But I do know this. That this morning I believe that God wants you to step back into the story that he's writing for your life. Step back into the story that he is writing for your life because it's a good one. So he opens the word and people stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. And all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. And they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So here's what I want us to see is there's three physical postures. We can go ahead and put those on the screen just rapidly. Three physical postures. Our, our physical posture can lead our heart posture. Our physical posture will lead our heart posture. Don't underestimate what God can do when you put yourself in a physical posture of reception. This is why you see your pastor so oftentimes during a prayer time hit his knees. This is why you see Vashon playing keyboard on his knees. I'm not sure how you do that, bro, but you, you do it. <laughs> I couldn't do it. Like I can't even play it, so it doesn't matter. But a, there is power in the posture, right? And so they stood in reverence, point one. There's three postures. He stood in reverence. Then he lift their hands in praise, and they bow their head in submission. So here's what I want to do just by way of exercise this morning, by way of calisthenics, by way of getting the juices flowing. We're standing in reverence already. I'm going to make a couple of statements about God. And when I make that statement, if you agree, if you would just lift your hand and say amen. All right, are we ready? God is unchanging. God is faithful. God is good. God is everlasting. 
God is forever. God, let's, let's make this one more powerful. God is powerful. Amen. Amen. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Jesus, we just bow in a posture from our homes to the warehouse. We bow in a posture right now of submission. We're encountering your word right now in this moment. And I feel led just to lead us right now in a physical posture representing that we're standing in reverence. We're lifting our hands in praise and we are bowing our heads in submission to your will, not ours. In Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said, amen. Amen. You guys can be seated. Then the Levites, they instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. So I'll let you sit down. They they had to stand up. They, They instructed the people in the law. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Listen, the Levites were not perfect. Nehemiah was not perfect. There has never been outside of Jesus someone who would stand in front of a group of people and proclaim the word of God that was a perfect individual outside of Jesus. He was the only one who did it. He's the only one who could. But that didn't stop God from making a practice for there to be something that is just a cohesive in terms of making it clear, making it compelling, making the truth stick, what he, the power of what he can do when he puts a broken vessel like me, when he puts a broken vessel like Pastor Hyden, Pastor Mike, when he puts a broken vessel like George in front of a group of people to proclaim the truth of the word of God, he does something powerful in our community. It doesn't mean we're perfect. It means that he's always used broken people to carry a perfect message. He always has. And he will until Jesus comes back and he brings us into completion, into perfection. So some of you may wrestle sometimes. You you may see a moral failure in the news. You may see, you may have, well, maybe maybe you've been on this faith journey for a while and you had a spiritual hero that, that fell in moral failure. And it shook you up. And I'm not saying that shakes me up too. Like I hate it. I hate it. I hate seeing it. But my faith was never grounded in them. My faith was never grounded in a person. And you know what? I still honor their life because they led me to the person of Jesus. Understanding that I'm praying for redemption, for reconciliation, for them to be made right with God again. And he can still use them again despite what they've done. Despite what I'll ever do. It's not about the people. It's about Jesus. In verse 9 it says this. Then Nehemiah the governor, after they have read the word, they've, they've gone through that physical posture of receiving the word. Ezra the priest and the teacher of the law and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been, they'd been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. So like they're re- he's reading the words of the law and then and then folks are just like losing it. They're, they're just crying, they're weeping. They're like it, it's it's getting like like kind of out of control I can imagine. And the Levites are like, "Whoa, whoa, 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 hold on, hold on. 
do not weep. This day is a holy day for to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Now, why were they mourning or weeping? And then we'll move from that. Why were they mourning or weeping? I think there's two reasons why. Number one, when we encounter the word, the word encounters us. And so when we encounter the word, if the word encounters us, it convicts us, right? I think they were overwhelmed by how faithful God had been to their people, despite how unfaithful they had been to God. I think they were overwhelmed by that. I think they saw their sin. I think they saw, oh man, when we, our ancestors, when we were, when we got dispersed all over the Babylonian Empire 67 years ago, we were in a posture that was unrepentant. We were in a posture, we weren't, we weren't repenting. Like our, our grandparents, they weren't repenting. And our nation just collectively was far from God. And that made us susceptible. Like they're, they're just seeing this picture painted. The second Corinthians, here's some New Testament footing. of How do, how do we handle that grief? Because we've been hit with that grief, right? When you're, when you're in this posture of repentance, God brings a sin to your mind. He brings a thought to your heart. He brings something that's like, gosh, I blew it, right? Like I was disrespectful. I was not honoring. I fell into sin. Like, I shouldn't, have, I shouldn't be involved in that relationship. You messed up, and God brings that, that godly sorrow. Where here's some New Testament footing to, to how do we deal with that godly sorrow. 2 Corinthians 7, 9, it says, as it is, and Paul's talking to the Corinthian church, all right? Like, you want to just be like, oh, man, I, like, he probably forgave that church for, like, something just, like, mild, like, disrespecting your parents or something, like, just normal teenage stuff or like whatever. Like go read some history on what the Corinthian church was, was getting into. Like it's, it's some like they, they, they put Las Vegas to shame and some stuff. Like they were, they were getting into some bad activity. And, here, and here's what Paul said to the Corinthians on how to deal with conviction, with godly sorrow. He says, as it is, I rejoice, rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. Godly grief doesn't make you lose. Verse 10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Some of us walk around, I won't quote the movie, but some of us walk around with a tattoo that says no regrets, and regrets is spelled wrong, right? <laughs> Some of us walk around like that, embracing our repentance in a false way, like, like yeah, God, God redeemed me, but I'm still a mess up. Like, like that's not what it is. It's salvation with no regrets. You're forgetting what lies behind, because your identity is not in yourself and your failures. Your identity is in Jesus. He says, for godly grief, grief produces repentance, at least to salvation, without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death the enemy wants to isolate you in your grief and your repentant moments the enemy wants he sees an opportunity to hijack with our insecurities and send you in a downward spiral it's death was john 10 10 said the thief comes to steal kill and destroy but jesus comes to give you what life and life to the full the enemy is wanting to kill your spirit. He wants to kill your more. He wants to kill the next step that God is, is sending you into. And he's doing that sometimes on the heels of our repentance. On the heels of our repentance, he's making us believe that we will never measure up. It's like we're, like anybody like ready for Christmas movies? 
Anybody ready? Yeah, I'm not really for real. <laughs> but I do like one. I love Elf. It's the one and only great Christmas movie. We can all agree on that. And if we can't, uh, God will forgive you as well. But it's like, you know, when he messes up the toys, like, and he's like, he can't get the toys right. He can't make enough in the right amount of time because he's 6'5 in a room full of elves. Like, he can't, like, he's not an elf. He was not made to be an elf. But he's like, oh, I'm just a cotton-headed ninny muggins, right? And, and a lot of times it's like, that's, that's the picture of us trying to deal with, with, with repentance and forgiveness. It's like, we're just this cotton-headed ninny muggins that can never get it right. And we feel like we believe the lie that we weren't even made for this life. I just want to like speak this over you right now. Like you were made for great things. Ephesians says that he prepared in advance good works for you to do. You were made for greatness. He didn't make a mistake. He didn't make a mistake. But we, we get hijacked in that moment. And we allow worldly grief to send us in a spiral. And it keeps us from stepping into whatever more it is that God has for your life. The second thing I think they're dealing with is that they are broken to leave their former life. They've just made big moves. Like their families have just relocated to a new city. After 67 years of being in a different city, as much as they may have hated it, it may have been hard, it was countercultural cultural, cultural for them, as much as like those things were hard, it was home. Right? It had become home. Like anybody, like you've lived, if you've lived in the same place for a long time, you would be like, man, I hate this stupid street corner with this gas station, but it's home. Right? Like, I, man, I don't like this house. This street is going to pot. I don't even know what that expression means. So if it means something bad, don't quote me. It's like, but it's home. Right? And they had, they just left their home. They were feeling grieved. Relocating is hard. And they're standing in the square, hearing the word of God, overwhelmed with conviction, and trying to wrestle with what that looks like. Their circumstances were uncomfortable, their shame was heavy, and the Levites with such wisdom come to them and say that do not mourn or grieve. This is the Lord's day, it's a holy day. Nehemiah 8 verse 10, he says this, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks. Anybody ready for Thanksgiving? Come on. Go enjoy choice food and sweet drinks. And send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is, a, is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. Do not grieve. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. He says, go enjoy choice food and sweet drinks. He's like, that, not, not just, not the, not the cheap stuff, like the good stuff. This is cause for celebration. Like this isn't just like the cheap, like 80-20 ground chuck. Like we're putting carne asada for the tacos. You know what I'm saying? Like we're going all out tonight. Like we're, 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 we're smoking a prom rib. Like we're doing it right. Getting the turkey ready. Like we're going to the... Uh, uh, the the meat uh, butcher block. We're going to the butcher block. We're gonna get a we're gonna get a fine cut of meat. This he's like celebrate, enjoy the fullness of what God has for you, not just in this ethereal type of non practical way. Like when you're feasting on something 
beautiful and good, you're reminded that Jesus is fully satisfied. That he's of the highest quality. They're like, celebrate, right? Like, stop crying. <laughs> like, let's celebrate in this moment. This is salvation. This is redemption. The city's been built. Like, this is, this is what we prayed for. This is what we longed for. And I think the enemy was just trying to hijack the moment. And the Levites were like, no, we're not going to let him. We're not going to let him hijack this moment. Because here's what I think we do. If you don't get anything else, I feel like this is a word for somebody right now. That we so often end up punishing ourselves for something that Jesus already paid for. We punish ourselves over and over again for something that Jesus already paid for. Am I saying that you just go in this perpetual cycle of sin? No, he wants you in relationship. But he paid for your sin already. Stop trying to pay for it with your activity. Stop trying to pay for it in your apathy by just like, oh, I just won't get involved, then I won't mess anything up. Stop trying to pay for it with your anxiety and your constant worry. He paid for it. It's done. It's final. It's forever. You're sealed. If you've stepped into a relationship with Jesus, and that's key, because some of you, maybe, maybe this morning, online or in the room, that you might say, I don't know if Jesus has paid for that or not. And what I would say is the work is completed and the invitation is open. That maybe Jesus is calling you to himself this morning. Maybe you're like, for the first time, you're like, gosh, my life has always been about just doing enough to keep God happy. And what I'm realizing right now in this moment is that God wants me to find my happiness and my joy in a relationship with him. Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth, mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's a promise. So right now in this moment, you may need to say, Jesus, you're Lord. I believe, God, you raised him from the dead. And I want to walk with him. Forgive me of my sins. You may be praying that prayer right now. Forgive me of my sins. I want to walk with you. Drop a comment if you prayed that right now. We want to walk with you in that journey. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And then I love how the Levites come in with this nugget right here. Here's the pathway from, from repentance to joy. Here's what I feel like the pathway is. The Levites calmed the people saying, be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Be still. For this is a holy day. Do not grieve. When's the last time we experienced God in the stillness? When's the last time that on the hills of repentance you felt the freedom to just sit in relationship with Jesus before making a commitment? That on the hills of repentance you just were like, man, I'm, I messed up again, and you're still here. I'm so full of joy right now. When's the last time? Because I believe that the bridge between repentance and joy is stillness. 
And the enemy's always hijacking it. He's always trying to make the most of it. And you know what he's trying to do? He's trying to make you believe that you're God. He's trying to immediately hijack the narrative when you've said, you know what, God, I need you to forgive me. I need you to forgive me. As soon as we say amen, you know what God is doing, what, what the enemy is saying? He's saying, I know you said you needed him, but he needs you to be better. I know you said you needed him, but he needs you to do better than that. Shame on you. Here's what the psalmist says. I think it's a good remedy. 46 verse 10. He says, be still and know that Joseph, that Mike, Pastor Wes, be still and know, God is saying, be still and know that I am God. He's God. You can do about as much to earn your salvation as you can to lose it, which is nothing. It doesn't rise and fall on our good works, but on his good work. Be still and know that I am God, and I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. At the end of the day, if it was about my name and lights, then yeah, maybe it would be about my activity and my accomplishments. But the name and lights is Jesus. The activity highlighted is wins. It's Jesus wins. That's what we want to exalt. That's what we want to praise in and through our stillness. Take rest. Joy and joy in the Lord. Be calm. This is his battle. The burden of the battle belongs to the Lord, and the joy of the Lord is our strength. Nehemiah 8, 12, it says, So then, on the hills of that encouragement, they went away to eat and drink and send portions of their food to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. They accomplished a great deal, but it wasn't until they understood that it was in the stillness, it was in the recognition that this is a holy day because it's a bigger day than us. It's about God. It's bigger than us that we experience the joy. And then they were able to be generous. If you're so worried about your Thanksgiving ham or turkey or dressing, if you're so worried about like your family member, are we going to be able to get together or not? You may not ever think about the neighbors that you have that don't have anything for Thanksgiving. You may not ever think about the homeless community in Las Vegas that doesn't have a family to even go to. You may not think about them. You may not bless somebody because your worldview will be narrow. But it was in the stillness that God expanded their worldview and he said, as you're, as you're enjoying the choice foods and the sweet drink, send some to somebody else who doesn't have anything prepared. And in verse 17, the whole company that had returned from exile, they built shelters and lived in them. From the days from Joshua until none until that day, 902 years that Israelites had not celebrated like this, and their joy was very great. Here are two application points in this. Be still in his presence and celebrate in his joy. Be still in his presence and celebrate in his joy. Number two is be still in his presence and move in obedience. 
move in obedience. Because that activity for God will now be activity with God. You know, that, 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 that emotional apathy that you feel will now, towards yourself, I think God's going to turn that apathy into empathy for others. I think that the anxiety that's crushing us, he'll, he'll turn it to peace that's keeping us. Whatever it is, whatever your response to repentance is, just know that this morning that the purpose of his conviction towards you in your heart, the purpose of him giving you an unsettledness right now, even in this moment, is to pull you closer to him. And I just couldn't help but think about my relationship from a father-son, my relationship with my son. And you know, like stillness does not happen void of routine. Like I think sometimes we may misinterpret stillness and be like, oh my gosh, I need to like clear everything off my calendar. I never needed to do anything for months. No, I think stillness is more about a, it's about a routine. It's kind of like, you know, any parents in the room, you can't just like open the door when it's bedtime and like kick your kid into the bed and shut the door and run away as much as we'd love to. It doesn't work, right? Like, they'd be tearing stuff up. They'd be, like, ripping the doors off the hinges, throwing things through the window, jumping on the bed. Like, it'd be craziness in there. We'd never do that. We understand as parents that stillness requires a routine. So five minutes before the routine, we're like, hey, Cannon, we're setting a five-minute timer, and then we're going to start bedtime. He's like, oh, no, okay, 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 okay. We start the five-minute timer. It goes off. He's like, four more minutes. I'm like, why, why four? I don't know. He, he does pick four all the time. Like, nobody. That was the timer. That was it. He knows what to expect at this point. That's it. We're, we're going to start. Okay, okay. All right, let's, let's go get our jammies on. That's kind of a wrestling match, right? <laughs> like, do it yourself. Like, he's he trying to dress himself. Like, all right, let's go to the... Let's go to the bathroom. Let's brush our teeth. Let's go potty. I don't need to. I don't need to. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Go ahead. Count to 10. Sure enough, he had to. And it's that rhythmic routine, right? We go to the bedroom. Set his little alarm clock. All right, Daddy, can we sing our songs? Yeah, we'll sing our songs. He like He's really into Transformers, so he wants me to make up songs for each Transformer. I don't know. Like, that's just that's where we're at, you know? But what's cool about it is, like, the songs that we sing and the things that we make up are all about our relationship, right? It's because we watch Transformers together. Now I can make songs about the Grimlock Transformer that's a dinosaur. So we move from the songs, and then we do our prayer time. We read a story. And he... And he knows the checkpoints at this point. And he still fights and he still wrestles and he still tries to extend and he still, he's crafty in that way. But at the end of the night, he, he's known what to, he's gotten to a place of stillness. Because stillness requires routine. And I think some of us are just out of routine with the Father. Like, we're just expecting for this switch to flip. It's not a switch. 
Relationship is a lifestyle. Repentance is a lifestyle. Joy is a lifestyle. Can you imagine? Just picture with me what God will do through a joyful walk, church. In every circumstance, even in seasons of failure, that your joy remains constant because you have a routine with the Father. That your joy remains constant because you have built into your rhythm stillness. Constant recognition that Jesus, you are God and I am not. Constant recognition that it's not my will, but yours be done. We've got to have those moments. We've got to have that stillness. And so I think before we leave this morning, I've asked Vashon if he could just maybe usher us into a moment of stillness where we're fed by a song. And I, if, if this morning you, you need to make a decision, you need to maybe some help figuring out that routine. You, maybe you're like, I don't, I don't know the routine because I don't think I have a relationship with Jesus. Come talk to me, Pastor Mike, one of the leaders here, maybe the person who brought you, the person who invited you, and just say, hey, look, I need a routine with the Father again. I need to know Jesus for the first time. And we'd love to walk with you in that. Will you pray with me? Jesus, as we prepare our hearts for this moment, we just ask that you would give us the capacity to be still. Jesus, we ask that you give us the awareness of your presence. And you would do something right now in the quiet and in the stillness than you ever would have done in our wrestling, hustling, bustling, Use this moment, God. Make this be a turning point moment right now. In Jesus' name.